0: Hello, and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name is Clay Carnell, producer. This week, we're here in Washington, D.C., for a live conversation about Tom and Christiana's brand new book, The Future We Choose, with three time Pulitzer Prize winner and New York Times columnist and friend of the pod, Tom Friedman. Thanks for being here. So, yeah, The Future We Choose is out. I'm literally holding it in my hand right now. Can you hear the pages? It's a real book. It's not just available for pre order, but for order. You can get your copy at globaloptimism.com, and there is an ebook as well as an audiobook version, which is read by Tom and Christianus. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so we're here at Politics and Prose, a bookstore in Washington, D.C., for a The Future We Choose live book event. As I mentioned before, Christiana and Tom will be joined by Tom Friedman. He was actually on a previous episode of the podcast. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, head back to that episode and give it a listen. Okay, I know they're going to start the event here in just a few moments, but before they do, I do want to mention that they're doing more live book events just like this one. And you can go to globaloptimism.com and find out if they're coming somewhere near you. So let me kind of describe to you what the scene is here before we get started. Uh, people have been staking out seats for about an hour. Um, all the seats are taken, and so now there's some overflow of people standing. Um, it's very full, and the people are standing and leaning on the bookshelves, waiting for the event to start. It's really cool. It's it's in the kind of the back section of a bookstore. There's, there's no elevated stage, so we're all just kind of sitting together in this bookstore, uh, and we're going to talk about climate change. I'm actually off in the corner away from the main area with all my audio equipment, and uh, I'm actually next to the American music section, so let's hope I don't get too distracted. Oh, okay. Looks like they're about to take the mic.
1: Looks like they're about to get started. Let's listen in. Okay, we're ready to go. Uh, good evening, uh, and, and welcome uh, to Politics and Prose. I'm, I'm Bradley Graham. I'm the co-owner of the store, along with my wife, Lisa Muscatine, and we have a, a a terrific group of uh, speakers uh, here this evening to talk about arguably uh, the most urgent and consequential issue uh, now facing the world, uh, and that is climate change. Uh, Christiana Figueres and Tom uh, Rivet Karnak have written a book on the subject, uh, and they're both very experienced uh, in the effort to forge an international consensus on effective ways forward. Uh, Christiana is a longtime Costa Rican diplomat who served as Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016, coordinating the negotiations that produced the landmark Paris Agreement more than four years ago. Tom is a political strategist who was Christiana's senior political advisor during the negotiations, Uh, and the two of them have gone on to form Global Optimism, which is an organization focused on environmental and social change. Their new book, uh, The Future We Choose, uh, is, um, is is pretty compact, uh, but it conveys uh, powerfully and inspiringly a hugely important message. Uh, the book looks ahead to the year 2050 and lays out two possible scenarios for the future of our endangered planet. Um, they'll describe the, the two scenarios. Uh, but... Uh, but suffice it to say, uh, one is very, very bad. <laughs> uh, and the other has some, some hope attached to it. Um, as an added attraction this evening, uh, Christiana and Tom will be in conversation with New York Times columnist, author, and three-time Pulitzer Prize winner Tom Friedman. <clears throat> since, uh, since Tom's early days in journalism, more than 40 years ago reporting on the Middle East, Uh, He's gone on to cover uh, many issues. Uh, If you follow his columns or have read uh, any or all of his seven books, uh, you're familiar with his engaging, conversational writing style that makes uh, even the most complex topics accessible. Tom addressed climate change in his 2008 book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, where he presented a strong case for why the United States should and could take the lead in constructing a new clean energy system. And more recently, he served as correspondent for two seasons of the documentary show *Years of Living Dangerously* uh, about climate change. Uh, So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Christiana Figueres, Tom Rivet Karnak, and Tom Friedman.
2: Thank you very much. Great to be back at *Politics and Prose* um Christiana Tom, it's it's a treat to be here with with you too. Um, christiana has been an old friend of mine and um,
3: old uh, being the operator yeah, uh,
2: <laughs> And um, you know the introduction doesn't fully capture um, uh, the important role that these two people played. I mean they, they uh, were central to uh, putting together the Paris climate agreement um, and that is a very 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 big deal and uh this book is wonderful uh by the way nobody gets out the door without buying a copy okay. did i did i mention that okay uh, you know when i um uh think about you christian and the work you've done and and, and tom um I'm reminded of a, a obituary that... Um, uh,
3: <laughs> Didn't I mention old, right? Old yeah, yeah. being the obituary. No, a, that a we're, story. Are we story. writing the obituary tonight, Tom? This <laughs> was
2: it, so well done. That Amy Lovins wrote of Dana Meadows, a great uh, Dartmouth environmentalist. And uh, there's a story in there. Um, uh, uh, and it's about a, a father who was... Um, reading the newspaper at the end of the day, and uh, his very young daughter was there. And and so uh, he had an idea that there, there was a, uh, a page in the newspaper that had a big uh, picture of planet Earth. And he uh, tore it up into a bunch of pieces, and he asked his daughter to put it back together and figured that would keep her busy. And um, she came back after five minutes and said, I'm done. And he said, well, how did you do it? And she said, well, there was actually a picture of a person on the other side. And so when I put the person together, the earth got put oh, together, wow. too. wow. Nice.
3: Bravo. Yeah. And so I was thinking about Bravo. that story
2: as I was reading your book. Um, and uh, I just want to begin, first of all, for the two of you to introduce yourselves, in the sense of how did you get to know each other? Um, <laughs> what was the, the, um, uh, the essential project that you pulled off in Paris for people who don't, you know, uh, aren't fully up to date on. And then how did you decide to write the book?
3: Um, Tom, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, I, I can I know exactly what your agenda and calendar looks like so thank you very much for taking this time for for old friends. Um, uh, actually Tom, maybe we can be inspired by a little note that is in the book about um, the contrast between the two of you right? Uh, so we say in the book that I was born in the previous, Uh, glacial period uh, in the Holocene. And Tom...
4: I mean, that's quite amazing, right? We were born in different geological epochs. She was born in the Holocene and I was born in the Anthropocene. I come from
3: a developing country, a model of environmental responsibility and from a very, very political family. Uh, where my father was not just three times president, but he also took the very courageous decision of abolishing the army. And hence, Costa Rica has no army. Contrast to that.
4: (laughs) So I come from the UK, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. few problems currently as well, but there were problems back then too. The place where coal was first used seriously for industry. And I'm a direct descendant from the governor of India during one of the most brutal periods of history and the founding chairman of the East India Company when it was the only company in history to have a private army. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic.
2: So there you go. (laughs) Uh, Before you go, um, just again for everybody, what was the Holocene and what is the Anthropocene? What were the defining characteristics of these two geological eras that we have just seen the transition from one to the next
3: so um it's one of my favorite topics because i love to identify for people in what period were we born so uh, raise your hands if you were born in the 50s or before wow that is so cool okay so we all who have raised our hands belong to a very special part of the human species because we were born in one period uh, and we're now living in a completely different period because in the 50s, we actually moved from the Holocene that had been with us for 12,000 years, the sweet spot where Nature, in her infinite wisdom, had brought so many different conditions, temperature, uh, precipitation, all these conditions that actually allowed humans to multiply like little rabbits and go from 10,000 people that we were more or less at the beginning of the Holocene to the seven billion uh, that we are now. And um, and it was ideal, right? Life was actually supporting life. Four distinct uh, seasons? Four, four distinct, distinct seasons, seasons absolutely. <laughs> Um, and quite a biodiversity that uh, also took advantage of that sweet spot in order to provide certainly nature with the conditions that it has, but also to support human life. So, you know, honestly, we were cuddled. We were cuddled in the Holocene as a human species. Now, we kind of abused the cuddling and, uh, and became the top species of all of the species that were there. And so after the 50s, we began this systematic destruction of all other species we decimated 60 percent of the species that a lot were alive when i was a little girl um, and we have gone through all planetary boundaries since then so that's why the period that we're in now is called the anthropocene because we anthropos we humans are the top species uh, and have decided to take history into our own hands and and Honestly, the book is very much about that. The book is about a call to us humans because we are now, for the first time, in 4.5 billion years that the planet has been around, we're holding the pen with a power that we never have before. And we have the power over the next 10 years, but only over the next 10 years, of actually writing what the history of the rest of the planetary existence and human existence is going to be. That's the first and last time that we are holding that power in our pen. And so the book is about, let's not be blind to that power and let's use that power judiciously.
2: And the first chapter is that well, makes the point, uh, Christiana, that um, our future is our choice, not our fate. And you lay out the two choices. Share that with uh, our audience here. What are the two pathways?
4: So, so absolutely. So, we make the point that the future is a choice now, right? It is still a choice now. There will come a moment, extremely soon, where the future is no longer a choice, and that's for the reasons that Christiana just laid out. If we want to keep climate change within manageable limits, which is generally regarded as less than one point five degrees of warming we need to reduce emissions by 50% in this decade, right? That's the first task. If we don't do that, that's the point at which these really quite alarming feedback loops start to kick in, and the climate starts to become self-determining, right? A feedback loop is where we make a change, that leads to a further change, that leads to a further change, and it's kind of no longer, it dominoes, it's no longer inside our control. So the way we start the book is we set out what life will be like in 2050 under both of these scenarios. Now 2050 might sound like a long time away to some people in this room, but my children will be younger than I am now in 2050, right? I'm not that old. They'll be in their late 30s in 2050. And the two scenarios that we draw, one is we don't make any further effort to reduce emissions than we did in the Paris Agreement, which will put us on a trajectory to about four degrees of warming by 2100. And already by 2050, those impacts will be extremely present in our lives. We've had some small foretastes of what that will be like in the last few months just by looking at Australia. The billion creatures that perished in those fires, the extreme likelihood that we've lost whole species will become a much more prevalent reality. The air will become much more toxic we spend more decades burning fossil fuels, it's entirely likely that in most cities around the world, you won't be able to go outside and spend any serious amount of time without a mask on. It's entirely likely there'll be signs on playgrounds telling you that you can't have your kids in those playgrounds outside for any serious amount of time without causing damage to their health from their skin or their lungs. And it's also entirely likely that we will see not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people on the move but tens of millions or hundreds of millions. And the difference there, which is fundamental, is they're not fleeing from conflict or from drought or from something that will presumably resolve and they can return home. They'll have to leave in perpetuity. There'll be no going home after that. And how we will manage that, how we as humanity will come together and manage that remains to be seen. But we don't have to go in that direction, right? This is one of the amazing contradictions about climate change is there is this huge risk narrative that we're facing, but there is also a huge opportunity narrative. And people like us would argue that actually there's a strong chance that life on this planet can get better as a result of the fact that we now need to organize ourselves and actually cooperate. It's an obvious but interesting insight that nobody's trying to warm the climate. The fact that we haven't dealt with it is a crisis of our ability to cooperate. And that's what we now need to get on top of. And if we do, and we believe that we have all the cards to do that, by 2050, the air could be vastly better than it is today. The cities could be completely different, reimagined for human life, with trees and forests and biodiversity brought back into the cities. People like me can remember summer nights when I was a child when the windscreen was covered in bugs when you drive through a summer night, and it's not anymore. We can recreate that, and we can actually get to a point where that biodiversity emerges again and booms, and we live inside, we reforest this planet. And if we do that, we will always be the generation that did that and that changed the future of the planet for everyone.
3: Now choose, which world would you like?
4: (laughs) We're going to have a vote. Um, You know, uh, Christiana,
2: one of the things that I've always believed as a journalist is that to name something is to own it. Uh, If you can name the issue, you can own the issue. And uh, one of the problems with Green uh, for many years was that the people who named it actually hated it. And they named it liberal, uh, tree-hugging, sissy, girly man, unpatriotic, uneconomic, vaguely French. (laughs) Mr. Gore, you're looking a little French. <laughs> and um, what I like about and it's been my project as well, is to rename green, geoeconomic, patriotic, capitalistic, innovative, entrepreneurial. Green is the new red, white, and blue. Yes. Okay, So um, uh, we have to recover the language. But one of the things I, I like about your book is that you've done that in a whole chapter of kind of reframing the language of abundance, opportunity, regeneration, Talk about that.
3: Well, we we have uh, set out the um, the invitation to everyone that before we go forward and start doing the concrete things that we have to do about energy and transport and replanting and all of that, that we whoa 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 let's just take a pause. Let's just, you know, pause for a minute and check how we're thinking about this. Because our sense and what we've learned from uh, working and then delivering the Paris Agreement is that whatever you are thinking is substantially whatever you create. And... We learned that if you go at something with a sense of self-defeatism, that it's highly likely that you will be defeated. Uh, whereas if you go at something with a decisive choice, a determination, a gritty determination to harvest all the ingenuity, all your stubbornness, which is what we call it, to actually conquer a challenge, then there's no guarantee of success. But there's a much better likelihood. So we talk about changing three mindsets. One is moving from defeatism and doom and gloom and all of that, you know, that, that we understand and we are part of because the pain of what we are losing right now hits us very deeply. And at the same time, we understand that if we crawl into a little box of anger, despair, fear, doom and gloom, we're not gonna do anything positive to change it. So we are calling that stubborn optimism. Crawl out of that box, take that energy, and transform it into something that is actually gonna do everyone some good. Because there uh, has
2: been a tendency in the environmental movement to say, you're gonna die, I mean, ba- basically you're dead.
3: We're all dead, but yeah. you're
2: dead. Um, yeah. But we will talk to you, but you're dead, basically. Yeah, yeah
3: well, yeah. The, the, there's there's two parts to that, right? And, and And we think about it as two types of paralysis. One is the paralysis of fear, despair, pain. I mean, we we see people walking around with coffins on their backs, right? Because they are so pained about the death that we are seeing around us. Um, And so that paralysis of fear and despair and hopelessness Unless you're able to tap into that energy and transform it sort of in a martial art wisdom way, then we don't get anywhere. And the other paralysis is the paralysis of indifference, of who cares, right? I mean, this is going to happen somewhere far away from wherever I live, Not certainly not in my backyard, certainly not in my lifetime, certainly not to my kids. I mean, an incredible exceptionalism that thinks that there are individuals um, that are exempt from this. And that is fallacious. And so both types of paralysis is one that, or both types of them are um, sentiments that we're actually trying to convert and say, we understand that you may be in either of those boxes. We're not blaming you. We understand the reasons why. And let's think, is this really what you want to do? Is that, a conscious decision, or is it unconsciously that you're there? Can you exercise the, um, the freedom that we all have to intentionally choose to focus our attention, our energy, our creativity, our ingenuity toward actually making this world a better place so that we can have the world that Tom has just described, world number two. It's like door number one, door number two. Do you remember doors and doors? Talk
2: about, in that context, Tom, um, endless abundance. Mm. The idea that, actually, um, if we were able to create kind of ecosystem solutions where we collaborated with one another, not zero-sum solutions where I grab mine and you grab yours, we actually can be environmentalists in a world of endless
4: abundance. Right. So so, so another of these mindsets that we talk about in the book is um, – is is something fundamental that we need to shift to, right, which can seem counterintuitive. So we have reached the point now where we have met the limits of the planet to sustain those of us who are living here at the moment, right? And the natural inclination based on our mentality, because our economic system values scarcity, right? If something is scarce, it's therefore valuable. And if it's abundant, it's meaningless. And that model gets replayed in all sorts of ways that are actually incredibly damaging, right? like like in education and other things, if it's scarce, it's valuable, if it's abundant, it's meaningless, which is insane. So what we talk about in the book is that we all need to flip our mental states so that we don't value things in quite that way, because there is a new model of zero sum. And it's not you win, I lose, or, or, or the other way around. It's either we're all going to lose, or we're all going to win, right? We are all in this together. We are either gonna drive this ship into the bottom of the ocean and have that world I described earlier, or we're gonna realize that actually our future thriving is depending on everyone else's future thriving. And we can't separate ourselves off from this. We can't say, I'm gonna hide behind my wall and protect myself, it isn't gonna work. So that's the mental shift that we feel we need to get to. That was mimicked in the Paris Agreement. So just very quickly, the road to the Paris Agreement for a long time was mired in this issue of fairness. right? So developing countries would say to developed countries, you caused this problem. And what's more, you said you'd sort it out. So go away and do something, and then we'll talk about a global agreement on climate. And they were right, right. That's a logically correct argument. But then developed countries would say to developing countries, well, the world has changed now. Most of the emissions come from China and India and other parts of the world. This needs to be an everyone everywhere initiative. And those arguments about fairness kind of fought each other out for years. And it became incredibly difficult to make progress. What was done in Paris was this was flipped. Rather than a sense of scarcity of like, this is some horrible thing that we all have to fight over in terms of nobody wants to have to take climate action. It was flipped through years of work. Christiana's refusal to collude in the narrative of pessimism and reductionism was one of the major factors that led everybody to realize that actually this is an opportunity to be grasped. We can flip this around. We can say this is in our own interests to take these steps. And that was a new kind of abundance. Taking action on climate change creates a better world for everyone. It creates economic opportunities. And that is in many ways a mind shift. Right, that then leads to the opportunity where we can make progress.
2: Um, you've got a kind of ten-step um, approach to act, you know, activism. Go through, the, go through all ten for people.
3: Go through all ten. <laughs> <laughs> can we do that? <laughs> um, before we get there, can we actually go to the third mindset Please. because it is very fundamental to what we go out there and do, and we call it radical regeneration. And what we mean by that is we tend to forget that we have a regenerative spirit that is innate to all human beings. Evidence. If a person who is loved and dear to us has a hard time, the first thing that we immediately do is we go to that person and we take care of that person, and we build that person up in whatever ways are needed in order to have that person come back up to where they need to be. We don't always do that with ourselves, and that's one of the things that we say, we have to do that with ourselves because we tend to forget that we also need this regeneration. And we also need to do it with everyone else, not just with those who are near and dear to us, but to understand that there actually is no barrier, no wall, no distance between those mothers who are right now having babies in the Sahel and those of us who are sitting here, right? We have to be able to extend the arc of regeneration across all of humanity, those who are near and dear and everyone else. And then we have to be able to extend that arc over nature in the understanding that we have destroyed the basis of human life to the point where it may not be able to sustain us anymore and that our responsibility is to go out there and actively regenerate Regenerate the oceans, regenerate the soil, regenerate the air, regenerate everything that is actually giving us, providing us with the very basics of life. Where do you think your water comes from? Try to, you know, spend a couple of days without any... Thing to drink. Where does food come from? Whether it's animal or plant, it comes from nature. Where do you think your oxygen comes that you breathe? It all comes from nature. And we tend to forget that we have such a dependency on nature. So we call that radical regeneration. And we're calling forward that spirit because in particular in this Wonderful country that I used to live in. We were just shared this amazing statistic that children in this country spend 30 minutes a day outside of a building or their home or school or whatever. 30 minutes outside, of course people have lost that connection to nature. Of course people don't understand anymore that water and food and air comes from nature and that we have to regenerate it. So we're calling for let's consciously, right? Let's make a mental choice of actually regenerating everything that sustains (laughs) us, which is ourselves, people, and nature. Everything, hold it all in the same basket. We are the regeneration. We are the regeneration.
2: So in, in writing about this issue um, in 2008, Christian in, in Hot, Flat, and Crowded, I argued that um, I have a principle when it comes to, to green, and my principle is that if it isn't boring, it isn't green. And uh, what I meant by that is um, everyone... Wants to be? Christiana Figueres organized the Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, that's pretty cool. I got to say. Um, Why Al- do you think so? <laughs> I was there. It was cool.
3: At the end, yeah.
2: the <laughs> Al Gore winning you know Oscars and Nobels and whatnot. Um, but you know, one of the things I learned in 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 my own work on this issue that one of the great actually heroes. Um, uh, uh, of green, this was back when I was writing in 2008 about it, was a guy who worked for NRDC who figured out how to actually have the energy usage of every Coke machine. But to do that first you have to understand the engineering of a Coke machine. And the second you have to understand how it interfaces with a public utility. Now there is nothing more boring on God's green earth than a public utility. Okay? <laughs>
1: uh,
2: but um, uh, So my, my heart is always with people like yourselves who actually master the details, get inside the wiring and learn it. Um, and there's a little too much sometimes in the green movement of, I tweeted about that, you know? Um, and so... And then mom, job
3: I, done, right? Uh,
2: yeah, that's like firing a mortar into the Milky Way galaxy. So my I like, get out of Facebook and into somebody's face, you know? Um, and uh, I feel like in your 10 steps you're doing that so walk us through them
4: so rather than take you through them one by one I that we have three shorthand types right and so I'll just describe that because it it speaks to how we can engage with them so the first is who we are as people right and Christian has talked about this already how we show up and the attitudes that we have towards this issue are going to make a fundamental difference in our ability to be successful and our ability to shift complex systems from one state to another so Christian has already talked about that, about being stubbornly optimistic, a gritty, deep, determined optimism. And actually, optimism has often been most relevant in history when the outlook has been the darkest. And people have held this sense of optimism as a torch in the darkness and refused to accept it. But we also have other principles and ways that we think people should approach this. One of the things we say is we think it's now it's time to really feel this in our bones, right? to feel the sadness of this. This is a really heartbreaking thing that's going on. We're losing species all the time. We're losing coral reefs. We're losing amazing, beautiful ecosystems that have taken four and a half billion years of evolution, unique in the universe, as far as we know, to be created. And that's happening on our watch. We think we need to look straight at that. And that has a cathartic effect. And in our experience, that can lead to a kind of deep, calm resolve that we will spend our lives refusing to accept this and doing everything we can to change it. However, that's not enough, right? We need to move from, that's what we do inside of ourselves. The next step that we talk about the subcategory of the 10 is our own personal responsibility in our lives, right? We all have a big impact on the climate as individuals. And I know there's a dichotomy between that and systemic, and we'll get to that in a minute. But as individuals, we have to take responsibility for that. Now, if you look at the climate science, we need to at minimum halve our emissions in the next 10 years. That's enough time. We as humans tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10. If we think about this with information, organization and investment, we can actually make those changes, right? Doing something in 10 years, that's long enough for you to think about the capital and carbon intensive items in your life your boiler or your furnace or your air conditioner or your car and make a plan and work out how you can replace those if you need to with something that is fundamentally different and much more beneficial for the climate. It also gives you time to think about what kind of life do you want to live? How do you want to generate revenue? How do you want to, how do you want to make money? What sorts of things do you want to do? That's enough time for you to retrain and do something different, make a different contribution if you want to or to try to reorganize your life in such a way that you don't have to, for example, get on a plane every week, et cetera. And this is a process that we're going through. There's also issues around how you eat. You know, eating meat is a major thing. Making a plan so that you stop eating meat one day a week, two days a week, whatever it is. That's better for your health and it's much better for the planet. Giving time in an emergency is actually, gives you a different perspective on this. And once we start thinking about this, not in a panicked way, Okay, we need to do something about this, and we have a period of time to do it. And the third level of action that I would talk about that's in there as well is about how we relate to power. We as individuals have great authority in terms of reducing our own emissions, but we also have very fundamental roles inside systems. How do we relate to corporations? How do we relate to governments? That last one is fundamental at the moment, right? History has shown that once civil disobedience movements reach 3.5% of a population, that's 3.5% actively engaged in civil disobedience and protest, they have always achieved their outcome, right? That's 11 million people in this country. That's doable. That is entirely doable that we get 11 million people with what's at stake now, having left this so late, saying we refuse to accept this. We will engage in civil disobedience. We will talk to elected representatives. Yes, we'll vote, but we'll also take to the streets and make sure people know what's going on. All of that, all of those three levels of engagement are fundamental. And if we do that, we can do this. We have time. We know this is an emergency. We're about to discover if we're serious about dealing with this. And we believe that we are.
2: Christian, why don't you yeah. fill out some of the others, though, uh, that Tom introduced?
3: Yeah, um, I, I I wanted to go back to um, perhaps a very simple way of going at this because um, if you ask yourself, well, maybe I should be more serious. So what what do I do? So um, p- point number one. You can go into Miss Google and you type in, quite simply, carbon calculator. And there are many of them uh, put out by many different institutions. So you can choose your carbon calculator of your choice from your respected institution, and then it will ask you several very basic questions, uh, all to do with your energy use, all of which I guarantee is subconscious to us because we all walk into a room, turn on the air conditioner, turn on the heat, turn on the lighting, turn on the stove, whatever, connect our computers, connect our 300 other devices, and we don't even think about either the quantity or the quality of the energy that we're using. So the carbon calculator will begin to make that a little bit more conscious for you. And at the end of those questions, the carbon calculator will tell you what your yearly emissions are. If you live a typical life in the United States, and probably this is an over-typical audience here, but typically the United States citizen will put out 20 tons of, uh, of emissions per year per capita. So let's say, you know, when you go in, you actually end up with 30. Okay, don't condemn yourself, you know, and don't say, well, actually, this is a real problem because most countries actually one ton per capita or two tons per capita, which is true. That is the majority of countries. The point is, where do you start? So without condemning yourself or feeling guilty about it, just where do you start? It's our, All of us start wherever we are. Then you can start to figure out what are the low-hanging fruit that you can begin to change, how you, as Tom said, what you eat, where it does it come from, um, how you heat your house. Do you heat it in a completely uninsulated office or home? so that you're not just heating your own home, but you're heating everybody else's home around you. Unnecessary. I see here some Washington Grove neighbors, and we're very good at that. Um, <laughs> I, I used to live in Washington Grove, a wonderful neighborhood, and um, at some point I thought, well, I better figure out you know, what my energy consumption is. So I asked an energy auditor to come in and do an energy audit, and it took him you know, several hours to put the house under pressure, uh, and then you, it shows you where energy is just coming in and out without you knowing and he said wait 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 what did you say you work in i said climate change Mm he goes lady i've been an energy auditor for 17 years i've never seen a house as bad as this (laughs) (laughs) so it just goes to show you know we just have to lift all of this out of you know on Blind, blind use of energy and make it much more visible. What is the energy that we're using? Um, And the fun thing is you cut down on unnecessary energy use. You're actually doing your favor to your wallet. You cut down on red meat use. You're actually doing a favor to your personal health. So there are so many things that you can do immediately. But then, as Tom says, we have to make a plan. And we have to say, okay, whatever it is, let's say I'm at 30 tons. Uh, Well, I have to be at 15 by 10 years from now. And it's totally doable, totally doable. And not knowing exactly how we're going to be at 50% cut is no excuse to not assume the responsibility of figuring that out. And that's another lesson from the Paris Agreement. Honestly, none of us knew how we were going to get to the Paris Agreement, but it didn't stop us from saying, right, we have to get to a global agreement that everybody unanimously, all 195 governments of the world, will agree to a common path. We didn't know how we were going to do it, but that didn't stop us from committing to do it. So that's the difference, right? We can no longer be incremental. We now have to go to radical. We have to be determined and committed to actually do what our kids on the streets are telling us that we have to do, and it is completely possible. We should get out of the myth that climate is so complex, it's so costly, that we're not gonna be able to do it. What is costly is unabated climate change. We have to change that chip and understand, you know what? It actually is a much better world much better world that we can construct. And instead of just pushing through all of this responsibility, let us allow ourselves to be pulled in the direction of a much better world.
2: Well, to to summarize, um, you know, scientists say um, our task is to avoid the unmanageable and manage the unavoidable. That's where we're at right now. And to end where I began with Dana Meadows, we have exactly enough time yeah. starting now.
3: Yeah, right? starting now.
2: As I said, uh, nobody leaves, the doors are locked unless you buy a book. <laughs> uh, the future we choose. Thank you so much. Thank you. Books are
1: available at the checkout
0: Okay, cool. That was fun. There you have it, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Pete Cluttenbrock, Sarah Thomas, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Danielle Fink, Sylvie Snow-Thomas, and the team at L Communications, Zoe Trelak-Antich, Lara Richardson, Sharon Johnson, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. A few special thank yous. Cameron Russell, who chaired the event at the New York Public Library this week for the book launch. Politics and Prose for hosting this week's episode of Outrage and Optimism. And also a huge thank you to Tom Friedman for creating and shaping today's conversation. Okay, okay, okay. Before you go, there is so much going on online and we're posting new and exciting content as Tom and Christiane are doing interviews and as the book is being rolled out. You can find us online at Global Optimism or search the hashtag The we on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, it's been fun. We will see you next week.